1: Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for really, thousands it more. It is the cool kids club.
2: Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here celebrating my fourth anniversary on the station of the food scene. And couldn't think of a better person to do that with. But my good friend, Jamie Bisonette, recent James Beard Foundation Award winner, best chef, Northeast. You can give your acceptance speech now if you'd like.
3: <laughs> I don't know, I'm having a hard time concentrating. Yes. It's a lot of eye contact we just made.
2: Yeah, no, I know, staring deep into your soul. Now I know everything about you. So these notes are <laughs> completely moot. First of all, congratulations again. I couldn't be happy for you. You know, like I- I've known you for over a decade, I think, uh, from time in Boston. Now, you know, you coming to New York, opening up Toro and seeing how those two cities, uh, don't really define you. Um, you know, even though you live in them and you're a proprietor, what you've done with your cuisine o- over time and, uh, taken elements of all your interests and i hate using the word fusion is very much like bad brains i like it yeah so let's talk about your childhood growing up in the thoroughfare of connecticut
3: uh yeah grew up just outside of hartford connecticut a little town called canton Uh, even even a smaller like micro town within it called collinsville but they were just part of the same place and uh fell into a bunch of different uh, music scenes and got really into music with, you know, from my father who's a jazz musician, and I started to really appreciate all different kinds of music. You know, as a kid, I loved, you know, the first Van Halen record came out, I had to get it, and I loved Michael Jackson and like wanted to learn how to moonwalk and just loved the energy of like that kind of like dynamic pop sound, but didn't identify to it and just felt different. And it wasn't until I was a early teens that uh, somebody played me like a Misfits record and a Metallica record and I was like yeah this is different this isn't what everybody else likes
2: yeah There's- we were just talking about Ian McKay before because I, I loved Misfits still love them and Fugazi um, and it's, it's just you know a, a- Different meter too, you know. It's it's almost kind of like being in the kitchen in a sense. You know, there's that that pulse, that energy, and that strength. You oh, know,
3: hundred percent, hundred percent. Like for me, like the ultimate uh, way to describe what a kitchen is like is is like that. Uh, you know. Uh, bad brains first song where she starts it's like and then it, it's like that's your prep you're prepping all day you're like and it's building up it's building up and service is starting and that's like the noise of pre-shift and then like the restaurant opens and the music goes on and then you start cooking and the first ticket comes in it's like and that's that's the day that's your service
2: i just realized i want to start a bad brains acapella group with you maybe called like bad mouths and just like fucking rock out would be amazing sounds good to yeah. me but you know i make that bad brains reference because you could explain it a little bit more um the first album i ever heard of them was eye against eye and it was inflected with reggae because i guess they had seen bob marley and you know loved not only the performance but we're starting getting into you know rastafarian uh culture
3: well they were like that from the get-go even black dots their first records they they always had that underlying tone. They started off as, you know, playing jazz and blues and got into, uh, you know, seeing, you know, I don't know their whole story perfectly, but seeing punk and getting into punk in like the late 70s and having black dots come out. They looked mod. They were wearing tight black suits and white shirts and black ties. And they were dancing around like if the the Beatles and, and the Who were hopped up on something. <laughs> and they were just, you know, they were like punk rock. They were, but they were more than punk rock. They were hardcore and they were—they were like—they were, like, were I and I Rastafari jaw guys, and uh, they played—you know—they were really famous for playing hard, fast, like speed metal punk, then going right into like a ballady kind of, you know, reggae song or ska song, and it was just—they were the first to bridge that, like the pre-Fishbone, pre-Murphy's Law band that just made that kind of sound happen. So
2: were you punk rock? Were you hardcore? Were you straight edge? Vegan?
3: Uh, man. Uh, what's that song? I was a hippie. I was a surfer. I was so drugged out. I was out of my head. No, I was a, I was a hardcore kid. Yeah, I was straight edge. Um, I was punk. I identified more with hardcore than punk. You know, more of like Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits, Bad Brains than the, you know, other things. But I always loved the history of my Minor Threat. I mean you can't go, you know, far into punk or hardcore without hearing Ian McKay's vocals just screaming something. Um, but yeah, you know, I was vegan for years, uh, straight edge until I was in my early 20s, vegan till the same. Um, and it taught me a lot about discipline and just being, you know, knowing what you believe in.
2: You know, you say discipline, and maybe we'll talk about a chef's kill mode later. But, you know, <laughs> discipline and restraint are, are two very similar things. Um, your career path was it tended towards music and chaos, or where did you find the culinary arts?
3: Uh, Wow. You know, I get asked that question a lot. And every time I f- I contemplate, I look back and just say, dumb fucking luck. <laughs> that's all it was. Uh, I played in bands and like we would leave school early and had jobs because we were the kids. You know, we are, you know, that like that section of school where they say, oh, those kids aren't going to go to college. So we're going to let them do a work study program where they get to leave at lunch and go get real jobs because they need to start earning their minimum wage <laughs> now because they're going to be school, doing that yeah. for the next 20 years. Yep. Yeah, that's what that was me. So doing that uh, gave me the freedom to work a job. I worked at a grocery store in the deli, worked as a cashier, uh, bounced around doing that, and also gave me the free time to have a band. And, you know, we had a hardcore band called Justify, a real terrible, terrible band, really bad. Um, and we we would you know rock out in Andy Ordensky's basement and talk about what we were gonna have for lunch. And no matter what it was, afterwards it was, are we gonna go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and get the vegan the vegan potatoes? <laughs> or are we gonna go to the diner and get French fries? Like it was always about food. And I found that I was always concentrating about, hey, can I make lunch for the band? Like, what? and I stopped I stopped learning the music and. Yeah, you know, eventually I, I got kicked out of the band.
2: <laughs> for, for being a lunch maid. Yeah,
3: pretty much, yeah. yeah. I was a lunch lady.
2: Yeah, I mean, so what, what did you try to make for the band? Because, you know, veganism was uh, really ingrained in, in punk culture, so much so that there were, like, cookbooks circulating through the punk and, you know, hardcore community, because there wasn't that reference out there.
3: Oh, I mean, for sure. Just being, saying in, you know, 1992, 1993, I'm a vegetarian— and you're not a hippie. It was like, well, what the fuck is wrong <laughs> with you, man? And, you know, like, oh, well, you know, these hippie kids are smoking pot. They just don't want to I'm like, no, we're straight edge. We, we don't do any drugs. Our, our drug was adrenaline. We, we wanted to do things, you know, we wanted to do things like go to the dump and buy broken couches and screw skis on the bottom of them and bring them to the top of a hill and go down and like sledding in the snow and destroy things. Like we wanted to do flips into people's yards and break their bushes, not to be destructive, but because we all had this pent up energy. And as, you know, a young punk rock kid and not playing in bands and playing in bands, going to shows and jumping off stages and doing flips and touring as a roadie and like a band would come to town and say, does anybody want to come with us? Like, Yeah, dude, I'll come call my parents be like, hey, I'm going to go see this band tonight in New Haven, Connecticut. And then I call them the next night. I'm like, hey, I'm in Pittsburgh and <laughs> we're heading to Ohio. I'll be back in like a week. Like you're in school and you're 15. I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally cool. Don't worry about it. And, uh, you know. Eventually I got kicked out of the house and I was always cooking. And then I eventually got kicked out of school and got GED and looked around and said, I need to get as far away from Hartford, Connecticut as I can.
2: I was trying to figure out why Florida, why Fort Lauderdale?
3: You know, so I was in one of those schools for the kids that always fuck up. And uh, the class, uh, they came and did a like a, hey, this is a college that accepts artist types. You don't have to be a straight A student. We don't care about your GPA. Like, yeah, well, they just care about money. And then I looked, and it's like, wasn't that expensive? They were really helpful with getting student loans. And they had graphic arts, computer animation. I I didn't even have an email. I had never really used a computer. My typing classes were still on typewriters in school. Like, this is like a really high-tech school and coming to a really low-tech part of the world. And uh, they had a culinary department. And I was like, you know what? I really like working at this grocery store and working with the food that I do. And I like... I like the way the squeegee looks on the floor when they're mopping up. I like that they make a mess and then clean it up. I love the stainless steel. I love the clanging and banging of things. It just reminded me of, like, loading into a, like drums into a show. And uh, I said, well, if they can accept me, I'm going to go. And they did. So I went.
2: Well, I mean, let's talk about family life a little bit before, because you had your vegan, you know, cooking abilities. But uh, I've read that your mother was known for chili and chicken wings.
3: Those are the two things that I can remember fondly. But she was known for making a lot of things. She was uh, – <laughs> one year we were having shish kebab, and my friend came over. He's like, your mom makes shish kebab weird. I'm like, why? She just opened up beef stew it like an oval dinty thing and put it on skewers. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know potatoes were an actual vegetable or a root vegetable. I thought they came out of a powder in a box or they came frozen. Like, there's – you know, late seventies, early eighties cooking. There wasn't a lot of a lot of farm to table going on.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, what was eye opening at the Art Institute?
3: Just getting away and seeing new things, and like being, you know, my first day having somebody say, "You need to learn how to hold a knife," and I was like, "Okay." And you need to learn how to taste, and you need to learn how to be clean, and you need to learn discipline, and I was kind of like, "Where have you been all my life?" <laughs> It was like it was like romance. I just I fell in love with the energy in a kitchen of you know coming into a spotless area, creating something, making something delicious. The smells, the aromas, just like feeding somebody, seeing that instant gratification, instant satisfaction of seeing how they react to it, and then the breakdown afterwards of cleaning and polishing and you know sh- keeping your knife sharp. It's like being a chef with a dull knife. It's like being a musician with an out of tune guitar. It's just you can't do it. Properly.
2: So, I mean, where did all that adrenaline go? Obviously, it was refocusing the food. But how, how did you create a discipline for yourself when there wasn't that much before?
3: I had a little bit of help from the authorities. <laughs> Shout out to the authorities. <laughs> yeah, uh, ACAB. But they did really help me. Uh, I got arrested a lot. Got in a lot of trouble for fighting and just doing dumb shit and being a kid. And I went to culinary school at 17 years old. And I was a child. I wasn't legally allowed to use the slicer until my second semester, because in Florida, you're not allowed to use heavy machinery, and the slicer was technically heavy machinery, you know? Um, and then I you know, graduated school and was still part of the... I mean, I always stayed part of the punk rock hardcore scene, touring with bands and going to see things. And um, After that, I decided I wanted to really take my, my craft seriously, and I left, I left Florida. I went to Boston. I literally left, decided on Friday, packed up my stuff, Got in uh, my car, my Ford Escort LX 1989 hatchback, and drove straight from Fort Lauderdale to Boston. Uh, lived with my uncle for a couple months, worked at a couple restaurants, and then decided that Boston wasn't for me at that time. Went back to Connecticut, and then bounced around. Did some time in Phoenix, uh, just traveled, and then found myself back in, uh, back in Connecticut uh, in like late 90s. And I wasn't really doing much there, working at the best restaurants they had and learning a ton. But I I turned into a townie at that point. (laughs) I learned how to cook pretty well and learned how to drink really well and really honed my skills of being a dick at a a bar. And uh, one day I just had a realization that if I stayed in Hartford, I was going to go down the path that everybody growing up thought I was going to go down, which was being a loser, going to jail and... Being, you know uncreative just uninspiring and i moved to boston to work to work at cleo with ken oranger and uh didn't end up end up staying there bounced around and here we are 14 years later ken's my business partner we've got three restaurants together <laughs> and uh somebody put a medal around my neck a couple weeks ago somebody it's so somebody
2: weird. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a crazy life <laughs> well, now we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about being a masshole. You've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. We'll be right back.
1: program has been brought to you by whole foods market seeing a need to help people sort through all the misinformation about healthy eating whole foods market added a seventh core value to promote the health of our stakeholders through healthy eating education in our stores we give you the tools you need for choosing the most nutritious foods and healthy recipes as well as offering classes with nutritionists and cooking coaches to help inspire good health and well-being Stop by your local store today and learn more about our Health Starts Here program and wellness clubs or online at WholeFoodsMarket.com slash Health Starts Here.
2: Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jamie Biesonette. Um I said mass I mean that as affectionately as I can, because I I went to school and lived in Boston for years. And, you know, I'll, I'll say it now. I'm a Red Sox fan. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Red Sox fan. Because there's something about that city that changed me, and I don't know if it's a similar thing, but... 100 percent
3: i grew up in in connecticut and it was like 50 50 my uncle loved the red sox my best friend was from the bronx i became a yankees fan i had everything mr baseball don mattingly ricky henderson i knew oh. every item of everything going on from the like 78 to probably 89 yankees team i went to more games at the old yankee stadium than anywhere else and I moved to Boston, and I would wear a Yankees hat, and I was there for about six years. Like, yeah, I'm a Yankees fan, and then we opened up Eastern Standard, which is right by the Fenway Park, and I would wear my Yankees hat. And <laughs> like, oh, you're just doing that to be a jerk. I'm like, nope, I'm a Yankees fan. That's what I. That's what I am. I'm a Yankees fan. And then a couple of years later, I was friends became friends with a you know, uh, passive friends with with Kevin Euclidis, who was on the Sox at the time, and he goes, dude, you're not a Yankees fan. I, he goes what are you talking about? He's like, you're a baseball fan. You love baseball. You talk about it all the time and you come to the Red Sox games and you root for the Red Sox unless they're playing the Yankees. He's like, you're just a baseball fan and you should embrace the city that you, you're a part of. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. And, uh, you know, I was traveling a lot for that that summer and then uh, that fall and everywhere I went. People were like, oh, you're from Boston? Oh, Boston. And I was like, you know what? I'm wearing a Yankees hat. I'm from Boston. And people keep asking me about the Yankees. I can't even tell like two players right now. And a couple of years later, somebody gave me a Red Sox hat and we'll put it on. And I looked around. I was like, I don't know if I'm a, a Red Sox fan so much as I'm just a Boston fan. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what I say. I'm, I'm a Bruins fan because the Whalers are gone. I've never really been a big basketball fan. Um, I've always liked the Patriots. And as far as baseball goes, I definitely root for the, for the Red Sox. Now
2: you almost tripped up. I heard that the Yankees almost came out, but you root for Boston and that's what's so yeah. important. Um, You know, what Boston is that a lot of other cities that I've been in haven't been, at least for me, is it's got this camaraderie, this sense of, you know, support, uh, this system within that isn't as cutthroat. And I know it's a challenging career being a chef or anything creatively, for that matter. But there was always such solid people there. And I was lucky enough to have Ken Oranger as a mentor for three years as well. And uh, the profound effect that he's had on me is, is... Not lost, but what was it about you know working at Eastern Standard, Clio, K O Prime that was different than your other culinary ventures?
3: Coming to Boston, uh, just having grown up going to see bands play there, I just I felt like I knew the city in a different way. You know, people like oh we're gonna go to Kenmore Square that meant the Deli House and the Rat and IHOP, which now means Eastern Standard, Island Creek Oyster Bar, and Lower Depths three really good restaurants in the industry that back then to me were go mosh, go fight, go eat. Like, that was that's what it meant. And, you know, being like, hey, we're going to go to the channel and go see Quicksand and Burn, and now going to that same area means I'm going to see Louis de Bacari at Tavern Road and Barbara at Sportello. It's different for me. Like, I've always felt each neighborhood spoke to me in a different way. And going up there, having the friends that I had, people that I'd known since I was 13 years old, uh, just from from punk shows and like the hardcore community is it's its own subculture. The, you know, the punk scene is its own subculture. Very very supportive. Not unlike the the cooking scene in Boston, where everybody wants to help each other. You know, there's not a lot of sabotage going on. Not that there is in other cities, but Boston specifically. When you're in Boston and you're coming up in Boston and you go from being the prep cook to the line cook and the line cook to the sous chef and whatnot people are there for you there you have a safety net of people that really care and they don't care just about you they care about their city like great people rise to to support other great people in boston and that's what i love about it
2: let's talk about toro because you were at ko prime ken oranger approached you and this concept was born how did you two join forces collaborate and you know create this phenomenon
3: you mean toro yep well, uh, so I was at Eastern Standard and ready, ready to leave. And I was, I, I was the executive chef at a restaurant that uh, was doing great. I was having fun. I was making the most money I'd ever made. But I just said, you know, I said to my friends, I said, I want to learn more. I go, I want to learn. And I want to learn more from Ken. And I was going to approach him. And I didn't because i didn't like him at the time (laughs) i didn't dislike him but i just didn't know him enough just he just seemed something about him i just was like i don't want to i don't want to tell him i look up to him like he's gonna use that against me and then about a week later i got a call out of the blue i'll never forget it because i was putting out an electrical fire that i had accidentally started by trying to i took a plug for something that didn't fit in the wall and i bent it with pliers so it would fit because that's real smart 45 minutes later, the whole wall, interior wall's on fire in the hotel. Got in a little bit of trouble for that. But I remember watching that fire blaze, and the fire department comes in, and my cell phone rings, and it's Ken. He's like, hey, can you meet for coffee? I want to talk to you. This and is we...
2: like the greatest phoenixology of all time. <laughs> like, talk all the allegories that have been going on, from, you know, hardcore to sports to, just keep going. This is your show now.
3: <laughs> Burn it down. Uh, so I went and met Ken for coffee, and he's like, hey, I'm taking over this uh this concept where this restaurant spire was and we're gonna do a steakhouse there uh it's a hotel breakfast lunch and dinner banquets you know i know you're really good with hotels you're a really great cook i've loved your food since you were at Pigalle. i've loved you know watching you grow in the
2: city can we just shout out Marco Overflow for a sec
3: mark offly is the best
2: yeah, n- not many people know him in new york but man what a fixture
3: he's crazy as a shit house mm-hmm. rat in all the right ways yeah yep. yeah and uh <laughs> My first day working with Mark O'Falli, we had to, so there was like fish was playing down the street and some hippie kid stumbled in and was walking around the dining room like totally blazed out of his mind. We couldn't get the kid to leave and Mark and I had to bring him outside. He started resisting. We opened up the door with the kid's head and like threw him out like a log. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm going to like working with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Ken approached me, asked me if I wanted to, to, you know, interview for this job. I met with the people, interviewed, worked there for about, about a year and a half and you know, I said, I want more. Uh, I don't want to be in a, a hotel restaurant anymore. I want to go back to something small. I want to not do steakhouse. I want to, uh, I know, I'm young. I was just turning 30. Uh, I wanted to do something else. And I said, I'm. you know, for my birthday, my gift to myself was giving my notice. And I called him and said, hey, I want to give my notice. And without even skipping a beat on the phone, he goes, uh, Toro had been open for about a year and a half. And he goes, Cool. How about uh, if I make you my business partner at Toro, you take over Toro and we start doing other restaurants together? And I went, wait, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I-, I thought I was moving. And I said, yeah, let me think about it. And we met a couple days later and uh slowly I I took over Toro and the rest has been a blur.
2: Spanish tapas. I mean, was this something you were familiar with?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, from traveling i'd always been in love with spanish tapas and i love that you know going to toro before before ken and i became business partners there it was like my favorite restaurant cuz it was like build your own tasting menu in whatever speed you want you want it to be rapid fire and you want uh, you know 14 courses done in 10 minutes no problem order it all at once you want to do 14 courses over the course of 5 hours order one or two things at a time you could build it your own way and it was like the thought of taking Great cooking, great ingredients, and putting them in small plates the way that Toro did at the time and still continues to do now was something that we didn't see a lot of. You know, a lot of the tapas restaurants that you would go to were always middle of the road level. There weren't people weren't putting the energy into the food. And with Toro, Ken was. And then when we took it over together, we just kind of said, what, what's missing and what do we want to do here? And, you know, we just threw all of our ideas against the wall pulled it off and that was the menu and and the the rest has been like a like a honeymoon
2: (laughs) i can't wait for ken to listen to this episode (laughs) but you know panco tomate paella these staples were already on the menu so what did you personally bring how did you change toro and then i'm going to segue right into copa too because it's like the italian version of toro in a
3: sense I, i mean it's hard to say i don't like to talk about myself and what i've done but what we did with that restaurant was I had people that had been following me from Eastern Standard to K.O. Prime that were like, hey, Jamie's the only dude making really delicious pig brains and tripe and, you know, like lots of offal. Not the only one, but people found it in an approachable way because I was doing it where it wasn't expensive and I was doing it in a more casual environment. And one of the things we did with Torah was bring a lot of that stuff there, really pushing the envelope with offal and then whole animals and then saying, hey... Let's make this food. I mean, I think it's really popular now to say that, like, oh, that menu is really cool. It's like stoner chic food. As you know, that's kind of what we went for. But I went for like, what's the kind of stuff that, like, if you know, you're a little bit baked. What, what do you think is going to be great? And you know, what's you know, what do I want to eat? What do line cooks want to eat? How do we make it affordable so restaurant people come to the restaurant? And you know, I don't think anything was intentional, but we did all these things and.
2: I mean, more blood sausage. Um, What are the veal sweetbreads called? Mollejas. Mollejas. What else do we have? Um, I mean, again, with the offal, it was what a lot of chefs didn't. They didn't even know they wanted to eat it then, but they know they wanted to try it, you know, because there wasn't even that. Um, I was reading about how when you worked in Phoenix, you would go out on Sundays for a noodle, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, you... started falling in love with tripe. And at one point in your career, you cook tripe and people are like, oh, this is better than my grandma's. Like, this is outstanding. But realizing you can manipulate those organs, you know?
3: Well, I always, I always say, you know, being a chef is being a teacher and anybody can teach anybody how to fry an egg properly. It's the most simple thing, and most cooks don't really learn it, but anybody can learn that. I could teach anybody how to roast a chicken. I could teach anybody how to do trout almondine. If you look at what all the most popular cookbooks over the last 20 years are, you're going to find common things of simple, straightforward cooking. And it's so important. It's so important for people to master that. And as as a chef, I wanted to teach people something more. I wanted to teach cooks something different. And learning how to take something that inherently smells terrible is tough hard to cook and trend, like transforming it into something that people say, this is delicious. You know, something like tripe or blood or feet or ears. That's, I think that takes a little bit more, more effort and it's kind of more fun for me.
2: I mean, it's in the same vein as your, your fascination with shakatery. Um, can we give a shout out to your book too, coming out this summer? I'm August so excited tw- to check 26th, it out. August
3: 26th. hopefully, yeah, you can still pre-order it on Amazon. Makes oh, it my, makes me from, look really good yeah. for my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> But shakuri is like an
2: old-school idea. And what you've done with shakuri these, these newer concepts using different cuts, adding different blends of spices, and, you know, this pushes the envelope, too. Have you seen people accept that in, at Copa in a way that you didn't expect?
3: Um, well, when, when we looked at the space for Copa and we decided that we were going to open up there, um, you know, I said, I want to do a lot of charcuterie. And we started off doing straightforward things and we just had guests asking for more. And then as I traveled and tried things, I was like, you know, a lot of people are doing really awesome nuja, A lot of people are doing really simple salamis that are great. And I was like, well, what, what do I want to do that's different? And I found that when I was in Southeast Asia, having those kind of flavors were unique. I got to cook a dinner with Marcus Samuelson at Copa, and he introduced me to Bear Bear Spice. And I was like, holy cow. It's to the point now where I'm actually not allowed to use it anymore. <laughs> the, the, all my, my sous chefs are like, all right, staff meal starting to always taste the same. Every time Jamie makes it, he reaches for the Bear Bear Spice. And, you know, it's just great. I I love... I love flavor and I don't really care how it gets into a dish as long as it gets there and at the end you you taste it and go man that's great and like to taste something and go what's that flavor what's that what is that that makes it different and somebody's like oh it's lime zest it's like oh why didn't I think to do that and traveling and asking questions when I eat at my friends restaurants I always said you know little things like that that I learned from them just from eating their food is what I tried to put into my food
2: well I also know that in the book, you have a Lebanese lamb sausage recipe, and you didn't have to travel too far to get those kind of flavors and ingredients because where you're located in the south end, you know, right next to Formaggio Kitchen, is is another store that carries all that stuff. And I ate at Copa, and you had this dish. It was at Fregola and Burrata and Harissa. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I right? And, then, and and it was so interesting because I saw so much of your past and so much of your future kind of like separated by this rift of grain, like it was it was like so emblematic of who you are and who you were as a cook and you know that area of the south end
3: man you're making my food look really thought out that's <laughs>
2: great but i mean you went across the street and what did that shop what is that shop called
3: by the way it's like one of those where you walk south by. end food emporium that one oh, the lebanese market the lebanese market I think it's called the lebanese market yeah yeah but you walk they by. keep very odd hours they open yeah. whatever the hell they want and they close whenever they're ready
2: yeah <laughs> But I mean, you started inflecting your food with those ingredients.
3: Well, it was that, and it was also our landlord at Toro in Boston is Jay Haj. He's from Beirut, yeah, and he owns Mike City Diner as well. He was doing a Lebanese mezze dinner, guest chef dinner once a year with us, and his food was so fucking good, like, yeah, craveably delicious. And he taught me. He told me some of the spices that I could get there, and then the lamb sausage recipe in my book is me trying to replicate his recipes and even I say in the introduction to the recipe "said this is my version of what Jay makes it's not as good as his because he won't give me the recipe
2: (laughs) (laughs) but can you define yourself anymore I know Copa's you know Anateca I know Toro is Spanish tapas but where's your food in the world now?
3: I don't know. Um, I mean,
2: it's so exciting. That I'm not I'm not saying I that as like, I wanna, I you were a lost soul I again. Quote,
3: I want to quote Sick of It All and say, no labels, no lies, no bullshit to hide behind. You know, I don't think I need to have a label. I just like to cook good food and make people happy and smile. It doesn't matter if somebody says it's Korean or if somebody says it's Laotian or somebody says it's Jamaican. I don't care.
2: Do just, people say it's Boston Toro versus New York Toro? Because I think now you have a really interesting situation where <laughs> – you have these two establishments in two different cities, as different as the Red Sox and the Yankees. How do you cook for each clientele, each crowd? How do they differ?
3: Uh, we've got more variety in, in New York just because a we have a bigger restaurant, we have more space to, to flex our wings and do more, and we've got uh, different. You know, we've got more people coming in, so we can do more different things because of the just the dichotomy of guests. But you know, having the two restaurants, people who've been to Boston, they come to New York, and it's like that scene in Wayne's World. They walk in, and they look around, and they go, it looks like Wayne's basement. It's
2: much bigger basement. Yeah. Much longer run for the waiters to come up the stairs. Oh,
3: yeah. One full city block, kitchen to dining room, yeah. versus the kitchen being in the dining room in Boston. So if you want to work out, work at Tor in New York. I always say, if you want to be a food runner, you get, you, uh, get a free Stairmaster. <laughs> you go, where's the Stairmaster? I go, you'll see at the end of your first shift. So
2: do you miss... Boston, are you in New York a lot? Where do you find yourself most often?
3: On the Amtrak in Connecticut. <laughs> um,
2: you should just open up a, what are they called, the bar cars on Amtrak. Just redo all that for them.
3: I would love to do like some sort of guest chef dinner on an Amtrak Acela from yes. Boston to New York.
2: Let's Let's put that out there in the ether right now. That's going to happen next okay. year.
3: That would be rad. Um, I spend, I spend a lot of time in New York just because it's really new and my teams in Boston have been running the restaurants for so long with us that I, I don't have much to worry about. When I do have something to worry about, they handle it. Like they're like, Hey, this broke, but this is how we fixed it. And instead of like, Hey, this is about to break. What do we do? Like, they're so awesome back up in Boston. Um, I do get homesick. I've been going home a lot more often now and I'm trying to find a balance where I can be 50, 50 in both places.
2: You just need what pneumatic tube systems is that what they're called? Just like like in that movie Brazil, they just shoot you back and forth. But
3: you know, we're I was actually just looking for the toaster oven from the Time Bandits. Yes,
2: another great reference. Man, you just own like '80s to '90s trivia. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you a little trivia question. It's not even a trivia question. It's more of an, in, an interpretation. Because you tell me that, you know, Bad Brains is one of your favorite bands. Gorilla Biscuits, a, you know, close second, if not a mortal tie. Using those as influence, whether it's name or their music, what dish would you make for either band?
3: Well, I have a lot of respect for both bands, and I have a lot of respect for Gorilla Biscuits. And one of the things that they they preach about not preach about but you know talk about a lot as vegetarianism and not eating their friends and and whatnot so I, I would have to say i would definitely do something flavorful and vegetarian if i was going to do a gorilla biscuits thing um but i'm not sure where i would go with that for the bad brains i would probably just do something funny with like veal brains and make it awkward and awful and and delicious i don't know
2: let's do one more thing about awful You know, I, I too, am a big fan and proponent of, you know, eating the whole animal. And when you say whole animal, it's not just steak. It's not just skeletal. It's everything inside and in between. What, you know, sweetbreads are a gateway, liver's a gateway. What have you been able to introduce to Boston, New York, yourself, that you still don't see on menus that you really hope start showing up?
3: Cod tripe the cod stomach. We have a, a stew with cod stomach and octopus heads with spetzel. It's done like kind of a suket style like Barcelona, uh, romesco, tomato kind of base thing. And uh, the the texture of cod stomach cooked down, it's like gelatinous and gummy and chewy and velvety all at once. Kind of reminds me of cocochas, like the hake chins that you'd get in San Sebastian. Um, I love that.
2: Yeah, and again, this is a very big question. Why is it that wherever you travel in the world pretty much there is offal and yet there's so little in the US
3: I don't think that there is little in the US I just think that in, when you get to more affluent places the people who could afford to not have to eat the things that were not the best got used to that so when you go to like a rural place in New Orleans and people are still eating nutria you know that's, that's a swamp rat and it's delicious you know but somebody if you try to sell that to somebody in minneapolis they might not get it and i think it's just all it's all like you know where you're from if you go somewhere that's thick with you know polish heritage you'll see people eating lots of lard lard and things like that and you go to chinatown you'll see lots of awful Uh, no matter where the little chinatowns are in the country there's there's always something like that um So I don't know. I just think that you don't see it as much in the nice restaurants anymore because people want to cater to the guests that are coming in. It's hard. You have people coming in to spend money. You want to cater to what they want, not tell them what you want to cook. That's why it's great to have a restaurant like Toro or Copa where we have such a big menu where I can put half the menu of things that people want to eat. People want to eat margarita pizzas and chicken sausage and slow cooked broccoli and pasta. But I can also put on tripe, and I can also put on a pig's ear salad, and I can put on lamb tartare. That might be a little bit more challenging for guests, but if you build their trust with known things, and people go, their meatballs are so delicious, their orangini is great, and they know how to cut, bought prosciutto, they're more likely to say, well, we're going to take a risk, and we're going to try the beef heart today. And if that's good, then maybe they'll keep going and keep going and keep going.
2: Believe me, it's no risk, and you've done such a fine job of Having a, you know, fine restaurant with these lower inexpensive cuts and blended it seamlessly. You know, monkfish cheeks with Moroccan spices blew my mind. So keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep following you wherever you go. And thank you for so much being on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. i your host, Michael Harlan Terkel. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday
1: at 3. Cheers.